Welcome back, everyone, to our Sunday School series as we make our way through the book of Zechariah. Um, guess what? We are on the last stretch. We're on the home stretch of this series. We're now beginning chapter 14 today, and we're going to spend two weeks in chapter 14, and then we're done. So this is the second to last in our series on Zechariah. So give yourself a little pat on the back if you have been listening along and you have made it this far. We are almost done with the longest of the minor prophets in scripture. So I think that is quite an accomplishment and I hope that this series has been beneficial to you. I know it's been beneficial to me to to wrestle with some of these difficult Old Testament texts and try to make sense of all of these prophecies and apocalyptic imagery and metaphors and and all this kind of business. So it's been really good. And uh, we've got one more chapter to go here. Let's look at the first 11 verses today of chapter 14. Let me read those for you as we get started today. So chapter 14, verses 1 through 11. Behold, a day is coming for the Lord, when the spoil taken from you will be divided in your midst. For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city shall be taken, and the houses plundered, and the women raped. Half of the city shall go out into exile, but the rest of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as he fights on a day of battle. On that day his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley, so that one half of the mount shall move northward and the other half southward. And you shall flee to the valley of my mountains, for the valley of the mountains shall reach to Azal. And you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come, and all the holy ones with him. On that day there shall be no light, cold, or frost. And there shall be a unique day, which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night. But at evening time there shall be light. On that day living waters shall flow out of Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea, and half of them to the western sea. It shall continue in summer as in winter. And the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day the Lord will be one, and his name one. The whole land shall be turned into a plain from Geba to Rimon, south of Jerusalem. But Jerusalem shall remain aloft on its site, from the gate of Benjamin to the place of the former gate, to the corner gate, and from the tower of Hanano to the king's wine presses, and it shall be inhabited, for there shall never again be a decree of utter destruction. Jerusalem shall dwell in security. Well, this is God's word. Let's pray and ask uh, the Holy Spirit to bless our time together. Oh God, we thank you for Zechariah, and we thank you for your word in general. Lord, we pray that you'd Um, Help us to see what you want us to see in this passage. Uh, We pray that you would bless our time as we attempt to study your word and as we ask your spirit for illumination to guide us in our interpretation and in our understandings. In the holy and precious name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, as I was uh, reading and preparing for this particular teaching session, I, I was um, sort of, I wasn't really surprised at this, but I have to say, I was. It struck me kind of funny that as I read people on this, there was very few, uh, very little consensus 
on what exactly this text means. <laughs> as, I, as I was reading it, I'm sure you were probably thinking, boy, th this is some interesting stuff we've got going on in these verses. And yeah, we definitely do. I love this quote from Martin Luther. He, uh, in his lectures and his commentary on Zechariah, Luther said, quote, Here in this chapter, I give up, for I am not sure what the prophet is talking about. <laughs> so even Martin Luther and all of his great wisdom in interpreting the scriptures uh, just candidly admits, I have no idea what Zechariah is trying to say in this chapter. I give up. I throw my hands up. And uh, Calvin is not much better. If you look at Calvin's commentary on Zechariah, he also has some difficulty with this passage. And he says, you know, here's what I think it means, but uh, there's probably some other ways you could understand it. So even if you look at modern commentaries too, and you try to get a handle on this, it's, um, it's pretty difficult. It's a difficult text. Now, my practice when I am studying passages of scripture to teach and to preach on is I don't like to use commentaries until after I have figured out what I think the text means and after I have outlined and put my entire teaching session or sermon together. So I, I tend not to look at commentaries until my very last step because I don't, you know, I want to do the hard work of exegesis and the actual wrestling with the text and thinking about it before I look to what um, tradition and what other scholars and authoritative sources have said about it. And uh, I'll be honest, as I dealt with this passage, it was very difficult to see exactly what's going on. And so I've done my best to try to, to get the gist of this passage for you. And uh, I hope that it will be helpful to you and it will help you at least get yourself on the path to understanding this text a little bit better. All right. So again, with that sort of long preface to the difficulty of this text, let's now get into it. I've divided the text into three major sections, as I normally do. Firstly, in verses 1 and 2, we have the destruction of the old Jerusalem. Secondly, in verses 3 through 7, we have the deliverance of the true Jerusalem. And then in verses 8 through 11, we have the description of a new Jerusalem. So, destruction of the old Jerusalem, deliverance of the true Jerusalem, and description of a new Jerusalem. Uh, you can pause the recording, go back if you want those references. So we've got these three points. Of course, we've got the major theme of Jerusalem in this passage and various things that are happening. And what these things are going to work together to teach us is that we can look forward to a promised new Jerusalem. We can look forward to a promised new Jerusalem. Now that's a loaded phrase, and we're going to dig into that and figure out what exactly that means in light of Zechariah's prophecy right now. So taking a look here at uh, verses 1 and 2, the destruction of the old Jerusalem. Here's what Zechariah says, verse 1, Behold, a day is coming for the Lord when the spoil taken from you will be divided in your midst. For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city shall be taken, and the houses plundered, and the women raped. Half of the city shall go out into exile, but the rest of the people shall not be cut off from the city. So here we've got a description of judgment, right? Judgment and destruction coming upon the old city of Jerusalem. Now this is very significant for Zechariah's original audience that he's writing to. Remember, Zechariah's audience, as I keep saying throughout this series over and over again, are just now returning. They have just returned a few years previous to the land of Canaan after being exiled in Babylon. 
right? Nebuchadnezzar came in. He took all of the Israelites to Babylon. They're exiled. They're enslaved. And now Persia took over Babylon and allowed anyone who wants to, to go back to Canaan. Any of the Israelites can go back. And so they've come back. They are now rebuilding the temple under Zerubbabel. Nehemiah and Ezra have have been in charge of rebuilding the city, rebuilding the walls of the city. Everything is kind of being reconstructed. And of course, the original Babylonian exile happened because of the people's uh, uh, disobedience, because they weren't following the law of God. They weren't listening to the prophets. Indeed, they were killing prophets. and They were uh, speaking um, blasphemies and all those sorts of things. And so Zechariah throughout this book has been warning this brand new generation of Israelites that you need to obey God, otherwise judgment is going to come in the future and you're going to go back into exile. And lo and behold, this is exactly what he's saying in verses 1 and 2. Destruction is going to happen. This city that you are working so hard to rebuild is going to be plundered. Just as Nebuchadnezzar came in several decades earlier and raided the temple and took everything out of it, took all that spoil and brought it back to Babylon. So behold, a day is coming when spoil will be taken and divided in your midst. Zechariah is promising this whole Babylonian exile thing is going to happen again because y'all are disobedient and y'all will continue to be disobedient. That's a harsh word for this poor people that is now rebuilding everything that was destroyed because of the sin of their fathers. God is very clear here. He says in verse 2, I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city shall be taken, and the houses plundered, and the women raped. This is very serious. I think if you're a student of history, you can figure out pretty quickly what Zechariah is talking about here. You remember that earlier Zechariah had prophesied about Alexander the Great, not by name of course, but about Alexander the Great's conquests along the Mediterranean Sea and how Tyre and Sidon were going to be taken by by Alexander and that sort of thing. And uh, Zechariah likes to do this. He does like to have some historical prophecies. And although Alexander, in his conquests, never took over Jerusalem in terms of like fighting and war, he didn't have to do that. We talked about that in a previous week. But rather... Because Alexander didn't do that, there was another kingdom that did come along later that really got fed up with the Jews and did destroy Jerusalem. And they did it in 70 AD, after Jesus was on earth, after, uh, well, I guess right at the end of the time of the apostles. And that was the kingdom of Rome, the Roman Empire. They came in and plundered and destroyed Jerusalem in 70 AD. And what's remarkable is that as we work our way through this passage, we're going to see that a number of the things that Zechariah chooses to point out are highlighted by Jesus when Jesus predicts the destruction of Jerusalem and the destruction of the Jewish temple. So this is going to become very fascinating as we keep going. But notice God delivers on his promises. The old Jerusalem, that old city, was completely demolished by the Roman armies in 70 AD, just as God is describing here. They plundered it. And there was so much blood in the cities. It was a terrible time. If you read some of the, even the original first century accounts of that sort of thing. All right, so that's the destruction of Jerusalem. God himself is going to gather the nations to destroy the city. 
And now we move on to the deliverance of the true Jerusalem, which is verses 3 through 7. Look with me at verse 3. Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as when he fights on the day of battle. Notice that shift. In verse 2, God says that he is going to raise up nations to come against Jerusalem. And then in verse 3, God says he's then going to go and fight those nations that he raised up. This is one of those remarkable uh, passages where we see the sovereignty of God as well as human agency. In the sense that God ordains whatsoever comes to pass because he is sovereign Lord over all the creation. But yet he ordains things in such a way that the liberty of the creature is still intact. And therefore the the actions of the creature are still uh, morally responsible. That is, the creature is responsible for the acts that he commits, even though everything he's doing is under the ordaining, sovereign power of God. And of course, there's some mystery in that, um, in that teaching, but here we see it in verses 2 and 3. We see this. God's going to raise up the bad guys, and then he's going to take out the bad guys to protect his people. Verse 4, On that day, his feet, that is, Yahweh's feet, shall stand on the Mount of Olives, that lies before Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from the east to the west by a very wide valley, so that one half of the mount shall be shall move northward and the other half southward. Now again, this is a perfect example of where we start getting into stuff in this passage that gets very difficult to deal with. What exactly does it mean that the Mount of Olives is going to split in two from the north and the south? And, and, and what is this valley that's being created? And, and um, honestly... I'm not entirely sure on some of this imagery, but what I do want to focus on is some of the things that are a little more clear. Notice in verse 3, it says that Yahweh, um, excuse me, in verse 4, it says that Yahweh, his feet, shall stand on the Mount of Olives. Now you remember the Mount of Olives is very significant in the gospel accounts. Jesus was on the Mount of Olives multiple times, right? And if you just picture the geography for a second and just the lay of the land, um, I want you to know, I was in Israel, so this is very easy for me to picture because I can can see it in my head, but I know that most of you, or perhaps all of you listening to this, have never been to Israel. Um, Israel, sorry, not Israel, Jerusalem is comprised of a number of mountains. I I think it's seven mountains. It's at least, it's several mountains, I think. I don't know the exact number. But Jerusalem itself is very mountainous. It's very funny if you're there because when you drive around in Jerusalem, you know, there's no grid. There's no easy to follow roads or anything. It's just, they're kind of all snake serpentine roads that wind their way up various mountains and hills. It's a very sort of messy layout, honestly. It doesn't work very well for a modern city. But anyway, Jerusalem's got all of these mountains, and one of the primary mountains is Mount Zion. I'm sure you've heard of Mount Zion. And uh, Mount Zion is the mountain on which the temple is built. And of course, Mount Zion is still there today. The Temple Mount is still there today. Uh, The Muslims have a mosque built on the Temple Mount at the moment, and you better not mess with them on that because they will... They're, they're not very easy to work with people. Um, I was lucky I even got to go up on the Temple Mount. Uh, they usually don't allow, they try not to allow Christians up there for the most part, and I don't know how I got up there, but somehow I did. You have to go through this very intense security uh, screen check and so on. So it was fun to go up there, though. Um, but anyway, so you've got Mount Zion with the Temple Mount, all right? 
And then across from Mount Zion to the east, as we see in our text, you have the Mount of Olives. And I've been to the Mount of Olives too. They're two mountains that are next to each other. And these two mountains, Zion and the Mount of Olives, are like the two primary mountains in Jerusalem. They're the two most well-known. And Zechariah has a very interesting prophecy because what he says is that the Mount of Olives is going to be leveled. It's going to be split in two, and it's going to be leveled, and this will create a valley. So then you'll only have Mount Zion, the last remaining of the, of the main hills, or the main mountains, of Jerusalem. And this is all going to be accomplished, this leveling of the Mount of Olives and this sort of exalting of Mount Zion. That is all going to happen when Yahweh himself sets his feet on the Mount of Olives. And I think, I think that what this is referring to is Jesus. Because, of course, Yahweh himself doesn't have feet. Right? God doesn't have feet. But there is the God-man who does have feet. And the God-man, Jesus, truly God incarnate, did walk on the Mount of Olives. And it was the work of Christ that he accomplished while he was walking in Jerusalem, like on the Mount of Olives, that resulted in the exalting of the true Jerusalem, the establishing of it, the, and, and it is the work of Christ that accomplished the forgiveness of sins and the meriting of righteousness necessary to create that true Jerusalem, which as we've been saying throughout this series, that true Jerusalem is the church. And so Jesus by setting his feet down on the Mount of Olives and by extension in Jerusalem, in Israel, on earth, Jesus accomplished the leveling of all of the mountains in order to exalt Mount Zion, the place where the true Jerusalem, the true church is. Now you may say that sounds kind of allegorical. I think I like the interpretation better that would say that in the end times, God is literally going to come down and he's going to flatten some mountains. There's going to be some major geographical changes happening that God is going to accomplish them. And I suppose that's certainly possible, isn't it? God could certainly enact these kinds of prophecies physically. God's power isn't limited. He could come and knock a mountain down if he wanted to. <laughs> There's nothing unchristian about that. But I, that's not the sense that I get from this passage. I get the sense that this is a spiritual prophecy. And I get the sense, especially since we've seen lots of prophecies about Jesus in this in this passage and, and in Zechariah as a whole, it seems to me more likely that this is talking about Jesus. And Jesus spiritually leveled the Mount of Olives. That is, he spiritually leveled the mountains surrounding Mount Zion so that he could elevate this true Jerusalem, which as we've seen throughout Zechariah, points toward the church, points toward the people of God in both the Old Testament and the New Testament in particular. Now, once this happens, once Christ has set his feet on earth and has demolished all of the mountains in order to raise Mount Zion, this, the Jerusalem or the church, there needs to be some things that happen. And particularly here, we are told that the people need to flee Jerusalem. They need to flee to the valleys. They need to flee to, what does he call it here? The valley of my mountains. So remember, we're still in the context of Jerusalem being destroyed. And in Jerusalem being destroyed... The mountains around Jerusalem are also being destroyed by Christ. 
Right? So you've got this weird situation where once Jesus comes, earthly Jerusalem is going to be destroyed, and at the same time, a spiritual Jerusalem is going to be established. And, and, and physically, while this, the earthly Jerusalem is getting destroyed, the people need to flee to the mountains. They need to flee to these mountains around Jerusalem. Now, what's, notice, what's interesting here is that Jesus, in the Olivet Discourse, that is when Jesus was giving his, his um, sermon on the Mount of Olives about uh, the coming destruction of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple, what does he tell everybody to do? He says, when you see these signs happening and when these armies are approaching Jerusalem to destroy it, you need to flee to the mountains. So there's this tight connection between the destruction of the earthly Jerusalem and then the establishing of a new spiritual Jerusalem. And these things are kind of happening together. That's why I think this passage becomes so confusing is you've got these things, flee, to, this, flee to, to, to the valley of the mountains, and then this mountain is getting destroyed, and like, what's going on? There's multiple, multiple things happening here at once. There's a lot of moving parts. And I know it can be sort of confusing and a little bit hard to follow, but if you think about it carefully, I think you'll begin to see what I'm trying to get at here. The earthly Jerusalem is being destroyed. God's bringing judgment on it. He's raising up the nations, that is, the Roman Empire, to come and destroy it. And then at the same time, he is establishing the spiritual Mount Zion and raising that up above all of the other rival mountains. And further, just to sort of back up this claim that this is not, that, that, that this is talking about some kind of future New Jerusalem that is coming, look at verse 6. On that day, that is on the day that all these things are happening, there shall be no light, cold or frost, and there shall be a unique day which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night, but at evening time there shall be light. Now, if you're following along in your ESV, that's what I just read is my ESV translation for you. But some of you might have a different translation, say the King James or particularly the NASB. Now, if you have the NASB, you'll notice that it doesn't say anything in verse 6 about cold and frost. Rather, it'll say, that on that day, there shall be no light, and even there shall be no light of the luminaries. Okay? Now, the reason why you've got these different translations is because the Hebrew text here is really difficult. There's a textual variant. There's a, a different uh, uh, Masoretic reading that is different than what's written in the text. And so there's some, some difficult issues here, as well as the fact that these variant readings are also caused by the fact that these words in the Hebrew are very rare. You don't find them very often. And anytime you have rare Hebrew words, you run into difficulty with interpretation because we just don't know a lot about super ancient Hebrew um, in terms of the rare vocabulary words because there just isn't a lot of ancient Hebrew writings out there. You have to try to use other languages like Syriac and Ugaritic and Aramaic and Arabic and all these other related languages to try to figure out some rare Hebrew words and what they mean. Um, but I think the translation that the NASB goes with is a little bit better, okay? Because I don't think what Zechariah has in view here in verse 6 is that there shall be no light, cold, or frost. Having done some Hebrew research here, I think that the better translation is that on that day there shall be no light, 
and there shall be no light from the luminaries. That is, there shall be no light from the stars and the planets. In other words, the stars are going to fall from heaven on this day. We're going to have some crazy astrological perturbations, as R.C. Sproul puts it. He always has these fancy words. What it means is that there's going to be all kinds of craziness going on in the solar system. The stars are going to fall, right? The, the planets are going to fall. Not, of course, literally, I don't think. But rather, what's being described here is apocalyptic um, language. And this is precisely the kind of language that you find in Revelation. We're told more than once, uh, I think several times in Revelation, that the stars will fall from heaven. Well, <laughs> you kind of wonder how many times can the stars fall from heaven. Uh, it kind of rem reminds me that Revelation is not a chronological account of the end times, but that's a subject for another day. The point is that Zechariah seems to be using similar language here in the Hebrew, in that on this day, that all of these things come to full fruition, there's going to be no light in the sky. The stars will fall from heaven. This is language of the end times. And so that's what feeds into this other sort of layer that this text has, is on the one hand, so you can kind of think of this text as having sort of three layers. Again, that's why it's so difficult. On the one hand, you've got the destruction of Jerusalem. That's one layer. And then a second layer is you've got Jesus' work in establishing the spiritual Jerusalem called the church. And then thirdly, you have the new Jerusalem in the future. Now, not the new physical city of Jerusalem, but rather I'm talking about the new Jerusalem that's in view in Revelation 20, 21, and 22, which is namely heaven, right? The new heavens and the new earth. So that's why we've got some very crazy things going on in this passage. We have these three layers sort of intertwined and working together. And that's why, folks, just as a side note, prophecy in the Old and New Testament is so difficult because there are so many layers. And that's what makes this passage difficult. That's what makes the book of Revelation difficult. That's what makes any kind of future prophecy or any kind of end time sort of stuff in the Bible so difficult. Because there are so many layers at work. And we're just fooling ourselves if we think that there's only one layer and it's the literal layer and we have to just go with what it says. No, it's much more complicated than that. As you can see, there's some... There's a lot of layers at work, and they are intertwined and working together here. So the point here is that in verse 6, we have now very, very specific language that is corresponding to the end of Revelation. That the work of Christ, when he came and knocked down the Mount of Olives in order to elevate Mount Zion, the church, the, the New Jerusalem, is not completed in the first century. It's not completed just because he started the church. No, this work is going to go on, and there's going to be a day coming that's unlike any other day. And this is the day that the new heavens and the new earth, that new city of Jerusalem coming down from heaven, is going to come. All right? That's what's in view here. In, uh, in my opinion, let me add that, right? There's a lot of opinions on this passage, and you could read all kinds of commentaries and... and uh, Check with whatever scholar or pastor you want, and you probably get a whole lot of different ways to understand this. So I'm just being honest with you that this is very difficult. All right, last section of this passage, that's verses 8 through 11, and that is now a description of the New Jerusalem. 
So we've seen in verse 6, we've got this transition happening now where we're moving into sort of the end of Revelation almost, the end of, of the book of Revelation. And now we've got a description of the new Jerusalem in verses 8 through 11. Verse 8, On that day, living waters shall flow out from Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea and half of them to the western sea. It shall continue in summer as in winter. Now here again, this is another example where we, it'd be really hard to take this literally and say that, well, sometime in the future, there's going to be this massive water spring that comes out of Jerusalem and that'll flow all over the place. I mean, you just start to think about this. It just doesn't sound very feasible. Rather, this is a spiritual prophecy again. Now, the Western Sea that's being referred to here is the Mediterranean Sea. And the Eastern Sea is the Dead Sea. And here's what's significant about that. Of course, in the Dead Sea, it's a high concentration of salt water. Now, I swam in the Dead Sea when I was in Israel, and it was, it was really fun. You couldn't keep your feet underneath you. The salt water causes you to float in very strange, very weird ways. It's one of the oddest experiences I've ever had. And because of that high salt content, not only is it fun to swim in, but it, nothing can grow in the water. There's no algae, there's no fish, there's no life in it. It's dead. That's why they call it the Dead Sea. And then on the other hand, in the west, you've got um, the Mediterranean Sea. And the Mediterranean Sea for Hebrew literature in the Bible is a, is a, um, a symbol of chaos and death. And so what's being described here is that this new Jerusalem is going to have waters of life coming from it. And those waters will give life to the sea in which nothing can live in, that sea of death, the dead sea on the, on the one hand. And then these waters of life will destroy the chaos and the death in the Mediterranean Sea. These are living waters coming forth from this wonderful new city of Jerusalem that we're going to see in the very end. Again, this is the new heavens and the new earth, not a literal city. Secondly, uh, this is in verse 9, And the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day the Lord will be one, and his name one. That is, God will be one in the sense that everyone in the world will see that all of the false gods that they worshipped, all of the idols that they made, are worthless and phony and fake. There will only be one God. Not that there hasn't been one God in, in reality the whole time, but rather everyone will now realize that there is the one Lord God, and he will be king over all the earth. Again, this is New Heavens and New Earth language. Verse 10, The whole land shall be turned into a plain, from Geba to Ramon, south of Jerusalem. But Jerusalem shall remain aloft on its site, from the gate of Benjamin to the place of the former gate to the corner gate, and from the tower of Hananel to the king's wine presses. Again, this is why I mentioned before that earlier in this passage, when we're told that God, that Yahweh will set his feet on the Mount of Olives and the mount will, will um, split in two and be flattened, Remember I said that the reason that was happening was so that Jerusalem could be elevated, so it could be um, brought up. This is what Calvin said too. And here we go, we see in verse 10 that that's exactly what's happening. It's not just the Mount of Olives that's getting flattened. It's the whole land. Every other mountain except the mountain on which Jerusalem is, is being flattened. 
Now again, this is not happening literally. This is spiritual. What it's saying is that all other rival mountains are going to be gotten rid of. All the false gods are going away. Every other rival to Jerusalem, the city of God, will be destroyed. And this new, wonderful, amazing Jerusalem, in which God is the king who rules over everything, is going to be aloft, the whole city. And then it describes the various boundaries of the city and various gates and so on. And finally, here is the promise in verse 11, and this is what I want us to take to the bank today. Verse 11, And it shall be inhabited, for there shall never again be a decree of utter destruction. Jerusalem shall dwell in security. Look at that promise. That is what God's people throughout the history of Israel have all been wanting what they have all been waiting for, what they have all been seeking, a Jerusalem that is secure, that will never, ever see destruction. The people of Israel thought that the the kingdom of Solomon during his day would be the kingdom that would last forever. But it wasn't. It wasn't meant to. It was meant to be a type pointing forward to a new kingdom coming. And now the people in Zechariah's day are rebuilding Jerusalem, saying, this will, be, this will be the kingdom that will never get destroyed. This Jerusalem will never be destroyed. But they were wrong. Zechariah says at the beginning of chapter 14, right here in our passage today, that this Jerusalem that they're building will be destroyed. But there is coming a new Jerusalem. A new Jerusalem that will never, ever be destroyed. And that is the Jerusalem that we have prophesied for us in Revelation 20, 21, and 22. And that is the new Jerusalem that we as believers in Christ get to go and be a part of. And that is something that is exciting. Here, we have the hope of this new Jerusalem promised to us. And we can look forward to a day where we get to be in this new heavens and new earth, this new Jerusalem. And it will never be destroyed. And we will dwell with our God in security. Let that be a comfort to you today. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we thank you for Zechariah and we thank you for chapter 14. Uh, Even though this is a very difficult passage a very tricky passage with lots of layers and intertwined concepts and all kinds of things going on. Lord, we pray that we would be comforted by the fact that that this prophecy points us toward our eternal home. And we pray, Lord, that, that you would comfort us knowing that when we pass, when we leave this life, when you take us home, Lord, that one day we will be with you in paradise, in this wonderful new Jerusalem, that will never be destroyed, and we will live with you in security forever. Lord, we thank you for this great truth, and we pray that you would massage it and work it deeply into our hearts today. We pray all these things in the holy and precious name of Jesus. Amen.